Good morning. Uh, just want to take a few minutes and introduce Ben and his family. Um, for those that couldn't make it last night, and for those that could, I, I just want to say thank you for everybody that came out um, to meet Ben and his family and, and uh, show support for what God has planned for this church. Um, I want to welcome Ben and his wife, Tara, here this morning, and their three children, Elijah, who's here with them, and they have two more, Haddon and Addison Claire, they're both out in, back in the nursery. Um, just want to let you know a few things about Ben. Uh, educational background, Ben went to Wake, Far Wake Forest to Southeastern. He got his bachelor's there uh, with a major in biblical studies and also his master's there with a concentration in biblical ethics and moral philosophy. Uh, he attended the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is out of Louisville, Kentucky, which he received his doctorate in educational min ministry uh, with a concentration on biblical ethics and theology. Uh, so like he said, I think that Terrell was glad when he got through with, uh, with all the, the school. So, uh, but uh, it shows that, you know, his dedication to, to God's word through that time. Um, currently, Ben is the training and equipping pastor or discipleship pastor at Parkwood Baptist Church in Gastonia. Um, and he, he has also served on several committees with the North Carolina State Baptist Convention. And last year, he was on the Christian Life and Public Policy Committee, and this year he's serving on the Business Services Committee. Um, and that's just a quick overview, but um, as Ben comes up, I, I just want to thank him and his family for, for spending the day with us and in the last few months getting to know us. So thank you, Ben. Morning, everyone. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it's an honor to be here, a privilege to join you this morning. Uh, my, my wife and I have been very encouraged uh, with our time uh, this weekend and in meeting with the search committee the last few weeks. Uh, we have been, uh, like I said, just encouraged and humbled to walk through this process. And as I mentioned last night, if you were here, uh, this is an emotional and um, fearful process for us as a family, just as it is for you as a church. It's, just, it's a time of transition. It's a time of, as, as the choir just sang, trusting the Lord and seeking his face. Uh, and so nothing is more appropriate than for the people of God to hear from the word of God. And so as we share this morning, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Acts. <clears throat> I have a little dry mouth this morning, so I apologize for that. The New Testament book of Acts. So while you're turning there, I want to give you an introduction to kind of where we are, because we're going to pick up in chapter 2. Pick up in chapter 2. Now, perhaps you're aware, perhaps not, the Apostle Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts, or Acts of the Apostles, as it's called. We could also call it Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, because it's a record of how, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is established and goes forward to carry out the mission of God. And so, the place that we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 2 is really the birth and the first steps, the first baby steps, if you will, of the New Testament church. So if, we, if we, we rewind a bit to the gospel of Luke, what we see in the gospel is that Luke is introducing us to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he wants us to know several things, primarily that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, through whom God is revealing himself to the world. Thank you very much. That he's revealing himself to the world through Jesus Christ, but also that Jesus is establishing 
the work of God in the world. Something else that Luke is doing, if we read it, we kind of get this expectancy. We expect something is going to happen. Jesus is saying, I have come to establish the kingdom of God. I've come to reveal God to you, to create a people for God's own possession. And so through the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke, through this gospel, is teaching us, is instilling in us this expectation of some kind of great move of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, through his teaching, is ultimately saying it's going to happen through this people that God is forming. And so we close the gospel of Luke with the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus. And Acts opens with the ascension of Jesus. But before he ascends back into heaven, he says to his followers, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. Now when he says that, when he says that he is commissioning his followers... Now, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, perhaps you're aware of the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. It's the same thing recorded in several different places in Scripture, but Jesus is empowering and commissioning his followers to go and make disciples among all the peoples of the earth. Now, what's interesting is at the beginning of the book of Acts, the church numbers about 120 people. So smaller, most likely, than this room. That's the New Testament church that we meet in the book of Acts. 120 people. And yet, at the end of chapter 2, where we are picking up, the church has grown in the space of one chapter of the Bible from 120 people to 3,120 people because the Holy Spirit did in fact come and empowered the church to carry out the work of the gospel. So we're going to pick up just after these 3,000 people have responded to the gospel, and we're going to see how, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is worked out and applied in their life. So if you have it in your Bible, I would invite you to stand as we read the Word of God. I always encourage standing to, to proclaim with our bodies that this is the authority of God. This is His Word. And so in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42... Luke writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day... Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that this is your word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come now and open our hearts and our minds to receive it, that we might see wondrous things in your word. Lord, that we might be like these people, awed and taken aback by your beauty and your glory and your majesty and the salvation that comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. But also, Lord, like these people, these brothers and sisters in the faith, I ask that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to carry out the work of your church, 
to love your word, to love your people, and to love the lost. Father, I ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to kind of do a few things this morning. I want to give you an exposition of this text. I want to help us to see what did Luke intend for us in the year 2019 to read from this text and to take away from it. And in the second half, I want to kind of give you how this text applies specifically in my life as a pastor and what you could expect from me as a pastor. But I first want to begin with the word. What we see here is the foundation of what I call gospel community. If you hang around me much, you'll hear me use that phrase over and over again, gospel community, or another word for that is church, or another word for that is the congregation of the people of God. But I think gospel community is my, my preferred phrase because it means a community that gathers for the purposes of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we are about. And so what we see here and what Luke is doing in the gospel of, or the, the book of Acts is he's giving us the foundations for gospel community. He's answering the question that we aren't asking, what is the church? He's, he's giving us the question to ask, and then he's answering the question for us. What does it mean to be part of the New Testament church of Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing I want to note here, and I want us to note, is that the group is more important than the individual. The group of people that we see in this church, the gathered body of Jesus Christ, is more important than any specific member of the body of Jesus Christ. Now, we live in a culture where that's backwards. Our American culture would value individuality over corporate identity any day. People in our culture are out to fulfill their own desires and their own dreams, and yet the gospel so radically conforms us as we're saved into Jesus Christ that what we see is the body of Christ is who Jesus died for, who Jesus redeems and is redeeming, and who he calls us to be a part of. And so look at verse 42. It starts off with, And they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. The word there, devoted, can translate and mean a single-minded commitment to something. If you ask yourself, when you hear the word devoted, what do you think it means? You may can think of some things in your life that you're devoted to. Some things that I'm devoted to are my family. I am devoted to the Word of God. When we think about single-minded or steadfast commitment, it's those things that we so value, we persist in them day by day, week after week, month after month, year after year. These people, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, were devoted steadfastly to not only the gospel of Jesus Christ, but what we see here is they were devoted to the people of God who formed the church. It means they committed themselves to the church and continued in steadfast, faithful adherence to this newly formed body. It became the central priority in their life. Now, I grew up in uh, the church. My father is also a pastor, and so I grew up in and around Southern Baptist churches all of my life. And so it doesn't it's not far for me to think about being around the church, or being around the people of God every day. I went to see Dad after school. When I would get out of school, I would hang out up at his office. I would go with him to make hospital visits, and I would ride along with him in funeral processions, anything just to be around my dad. 
but that would also keep me around the church facilities and the people of the church. And so it doesn't strike me odd to think about gathering with the church every day. But for some of us, that would be very hard because the church does not occupy a central place in our life day by day. I know speaking of the the people where we're currently uh, members of, we host a small group in our homes, and we were talking about just this thing the other week. And I said, what, what would it look like for us to prioritize meeting together every single day to study the Bible, to pray together, to share in communion together, to encourage one another to walk in faithfulness, to open the Word and consider it together? What would that look like? How, how would your schedule have to change? How would your priorities have to change? Do you prioritize the word so very much as it's central in your life to the point where it is the single most important thing in your life? It's the steadfast commitment in your life because that's what we see in Acts chapter 2. These people oriented their lives around the church of Jesus Christ. I want you to think for a moment about all the institutions or groups or things in your life that make up your daily living, your place of business, your school, Uh, the place where you go to get your groceries or stores that you frequent, those kind of things. Think about all the things that make up your daily living. Now, most of us want to know what these kinds of places, these institutions, we want to know what they can do for us. We want to know how stores can meet our needs. We want to know how employers will pay us so that we can achieve the things that we want to achieve. We want to know how schools will approach education to see if it aligns with what we desire for our children. And then we make decisions based on how well those things meet our needs, our wants, our desires, our purposes, as to whether we will engage with them. Some of us would rather shop at Food Lion over Walmart because one of those stores may meet one of your purposes or desires or goals better than the other one. And you know what? That's how the world works. That's how business works. That's how it flourishes. But rarely, I think, do we ask the question, what can I do for them? You know, I I was talking and thinking, if I was to walk into, say, Tractor Supply up here off of the main road, and I walked in, I'd probably see a number of things. I would see some tractor equipment. I would see some grass seed and fertilizer. I may see some baby chicks there in the middle aisle, some, some boots, some clothes, everything I would need for farming or growing grass or lawn care, those kinds of things. And I might think to myself, well, I need to make note because I need some grass seed. And if I need grass seed, I need to get some fertilizer. I may need an aerator, so I'll get that too. And I'm making a list of all the things that I need that this store can provide me. But in the middle of my list, I may be so taken with the fact that this store offers me so much of the stuff that I need, I want to just give back to the store. And so I walk over to a clerk and I say, ma'am, can I speak to your manager? And she gets that real big look on her face because people only ask for the manager when something has gone wrong. And so she goes and gets the manager and the manager comes out. Sir, what can I do? What's, what's wrong? What can I do for you? And I just pull out of my pocket a, a $100 bill. And I hand him that $100 bill. And I say, I just, I am so impressed with your store. And it just meets all of my needs so well. I just want you to have this $100 bill. And turn and walk out. Now that manager and that employee would think that I was strange. That I had a few screws loose or something like that. Because that's not how businesses work. 
I don't go into a business and just give them my money and then walk out with nothing. If I go into a business with $100, I expect to walk out with $100 worth of merchandise. I expect them to meet my need for me. But we tend to establish, as I said, these goals and purposes and dreams in our lives, and then we figure out which things, which places, which businesses can help us achieve those. And that's kind of the routine that we fall into with how we engage with institutions in our life. And my fear is, and my question for you right off the bat is, do we sometimes treat the church that way? Do we sometimes come to the church looking for help in achieving the purposes and goals and desires that we have? Perhaps they're good goals. Perhaps they're good purposes. And, and God has so created the church to help us meet some of those. Spiritual formation is one of those. How, how do we grow into mature, faithful, God-honoring Christians? Well, that's a purpose and a goal that we should all have as believers of Christ, and that's something that God has instilled in the church to do for us that it would help us to grow and achieve those things. But you see, the primary purpose of the church is not just to meet my individual needs. It's not just to meet your individual needs because, brothers and sisters, this is not our church. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has called us to be a part of his church and his body and to pursue with one another his glory in all the world. And so... What we see in this text are four or five distinct marks of a biblical church. Four or five distinct marks of a biblical church, and I want to share those with you briefly. Look back at verse 42. They devoted themselves, and this is that word devoted, that single-minded commitment, is, is what goes in front of every single one of these marks. One of these was not more important than the other. They were devoted to every single one of them. The first one we see is that this church in Jerusalem was a learning and studying church. They were a learning and studying church. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the apostles' teaching. You see, Jesus was central to everything this church did. Jesus was central to everything this church did. Now, if you're like me, I tend to think about, well, yeah, of course he was central because he had been there. He had been there. Just a few uh, days ago, Jesus had been in the midst of this congregation of people. So, of course, he was central. But is he supposed to be central in our lives, in our churches, in the way that we go about it today? And the answer, without question, is absolutely yes. He is to be the central piece of everything that we do and believe and say as the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. And so to facilitate that, this church devoted themselves to the authoritative teaching of the Word of God. Keyword being, or actually three keywords, authoritative Word of God. That may be more than three words. <laughs> Anyhow, several key words. How's that? But they did not get together and offer their opinions about what they thought about Jesus. They got together in a submissive way under the authoritative teaching of God. What does God's word say with authority? And they devoted themselves to it, and they shaped their lives by it. And so when we ask ourselves, what does biblical teaching consist of? What does it mean to be committed to the authoritative teaching of God? Well, it's ethical teaching, which means how to live rightly before God. How to live rightly before God. Sometimes we can, we can fall into the pattern of saying, well, God is gracious and thus I can live as I want 
to live. Paul says, do I go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. And so God has very clearly said in his word, this is how to be a believer. This is how to be a godly man. This is how to be a godly woman. Here's how to handle conflict in a godly way. God speaks to all those things very clearly. And the church commits itself to those things. They committed themselves to the practical teachings of Scripture. They taught through the Gospels, the epistles, or the letters in the New Testament. Now, it's interesting to note at this time, they didn't have Bibles like we have Bibles. They didn't have, you know, I have a pretty nice Bible with a nice leather cover and fancy gilded edges. They didn't have all that. They also had uh, this part of the Bible. They didn't have this New Testament part of the Bible yet. It was still being written. And so when it said they committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, it was on the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, prepares us for the coming of Jesus Christ on every page. And so they committed themselves to the ethical teachings and the practical teachings. They wanted to know how to live faithfully before God. And this was the primary way that they sought to form themselves into a godly community that honored God. One pastor notes, there is no such thing as a spirit-filled Christian who neglects the study of God's word. There's no such thing as a spirit-filled Christian that neglects the study of God's word. He goes on to say, spirit-filled people do not flee from scripture and seek a substitute for it, but are driven to it and have their spiritual lives rooted and grounded in the Word of God. They don't seek a substitute. When it says something hard to us or it conflicts with a feeling or an emotion or a choice that we have, they don't go looking for something other than they stay in the Word of God. They allow that Word, the authoritative Word, to shape their lives and to serve as the foundation for all that they do and believe. One of the questions that I ask people sometimes is, how do, how do we know that this is the authority in our lives? Well, are we submissive to it? Do we take our hard questions to it? Do we take our easy questions to it? Do we take questions like, well, where should we go on vacation this year? Or maybe a harder question, what should we do with our vacation money that we've saved up? Or how do I handle an end-of-life issue or how does it apply to this medical treatment? Or my spouse has done this. Or my children won't do this. Or I'm struggling with this fill in the blank. You see, the way that we interact with this book, brothers and sisters, tells, first of all, us personally, individually, whether we believe Jesus is actually Lord or not. We can proclaim with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, but if we are not submissive to this word in every way, then we are speaking another word with our lives. So this pastor is right. There's no such thing as a spirit-filled Christian that neglects the word of God. And the mark, first mark of a spirit-filled church is that it is a learning and studying church fully committed to the word of God. But a second thing I want to note, and you see it in verse 42, it says they were devoted to the teaching, but also to the fellowship. Now, if you've been around Southern Baptist churches for a while, you know fellowship is, a, is just a good word. We, we use it to describe things that we do or times where we're enjoying one another, and rightly so. But if you'll note in your text, it says the fellowship. Now, in, in our English language, that's called the um, uh, well, I just left my mind. Um, but 
It, it is marking something specific. The definite article, there it is. It, it, it's marking something specific. It's got, a, it's got a shape all to itself. We're not, we're not uh, giving our opinions about what fellowship means. Luke has in his mind something specific when he says the fellowship. And so when we look at the Greek word of what it says, what we come away with is something common. That word fellowship in the original language means something common. And so we might ask, well, what was common among these people in the early church, what was common? And what we, what we see is that they had a common share in Jesus Christ. When they came together for the fellowship, the fellowship, what Luke is saying and what he wants us to see is when they came together, it was because of and through Jesus Christ. We relate to one another, brothers and sisters, not because we like each other, not because we share some hobby in common, which many of us might, our primary relating to one another in the church is the work that Jesus Christ has done in us and is continuing to do through us. That is how we relate to one another. That is why we relate to one another. Now, Baptists have historically always practiced something called regenerate church membership, meaning we expect all of our members to be Christians. That might be an oversimplification for some, but when we think about it, if we are not relating to one another on the basis of the forgiving work of Jesus Christ, then we are automatically inviting conflict into our body. We are inviting sin to come into the unity of the congregation if we are not relating to one another on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. And so what Luke is saying is, what was common among them, and not common in the, the casual sense, but common in the, it's what everyone has sense. What was common was their share and participation in God. When they came together, they realized, hey, what Jesus is doing in me, he's doing in you too. What Jesus saved me from, he saved you from that too. What Jesus is showing us through his word, he's showing that to you too. And so they had a common participation in God. The Apostle John would later write in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the way that we fellowship with one another, brothers and sisters, is by receiving faith in Jesus Christ and receiving forgiveness of our sins and salvation into the church of God. For a long time, when I thought of salvation, I only thought of being right with God. I only thought that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection made me right with God so that I would escape the eternal penalty of hell. And that's true. There's nothing untrue about that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is salvation from the wrath of God and eternal damnation in hell. But one part that I missed growing up was that that included salvation and membership into the people of God, which is the church. So salvation unto God also means salvation and membership in the local church of Jesus Christ. You see, the stronger our vertical fellowship is with God, the stronger our horizontal fellowship with one another will be. If I'm right with God, then there's no reason I cannot be right with you. If you find yourself out of fellowship with God, guess what? You'll begin to find yourself out of fellowship with your brothers and your sisters. But if you come close to God, you will inevitably find yourself being drawn more and more to 
one another. If you spend time with other Christians, if you share a great deal with them, that fellowship will inevitably draw you closer to the Father. Let me say that again. If you spend time with other Christians and you share a common participation in God with them, then you will inevitably drawn to worship God more and more and more. Many of you probably can think of somebody in your life that loves God more than you and encourages you to love God more. You get around that person and you're just encouraged by how they love and worship God. Maybe you're just you're, you're encouraged and you like to listen to them read Scripture. Or maybe you like to listen to them pray. Or maybe you like to listen to them sing. But something about the way they live and the way they interact with God through worship encourages you and motivates you to do more of that. And that's the purpose of the church. When we come together, we should encourage one another to worship and love God more and more and more. We should encourage one another to love the word more and more and more. We read just a few moments ago, Colossians 3 verse 15. I love that text. In Colossians 3 verse 16, Paul says, And let the word of Christ dwell richly in you singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with one another. Think about that. Let the word of Christ, that is the eternal word of God, let it dwell, that is have a place, let it have a place richly in you. Now something we can miss sometimes reading our Bibles in English is that a lot of the language in the New Testament is plural. A lot of the U's in the New Testament, the Y-O-U, are plural. And they can mean you all. And so in Colossians 3, Paul's use of the word you there is a plural. He says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you all. So he's talking to the church as a gathered body who are committed to the word of God, who are committed to fellowship together. A third thing we see if we look back at the text in verse 42 is that they were devoted to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. So we would say this is a worshiping church. This is a worshiping church that we see. The first one, breaking of bread, stands for communion or the Lord's Supper. Some call it the Eucharist. And there are two mentions of meals in this text. The first one is in verse 42, and we see it's got the word the in front of it again, so it's talking about something specific. And then look at verse 46. It says they day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. This is more of the let's sit down for a meal kind of meal. So there are two types of meals in view here, and the first one is the Lord's Supper. And I, again, challenge some of the people that I I teach on a regular basis that these people, this, this group of Christians, took the Lord's Supper every day. They took the communion service every single day. And in so doing, they were reminded every single day, right, what's the, the table says, do this, this do in remembrance of me. They were reminded every single day of what Christ has done for them. They were reminded that his blood was shed on the cross for their sins. They were reminded that his body was broken because of their sins. And they were reminded that by participating in and partaking of the table, that they were made whole because of Jesus Christ. They were joined together through the gospel because of Jesus Christ. 
And I don't know about you, but that is spectacular for me to think about, of being daily reminded of the work of Jesus on my behalf and on behalf of my brothers and my sisters. But that's not all that they did. It said they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The prayers. So again, something formal, something objective is what Luke is saying. It's a, it's a community at prayer, essentially. They gathered to hear the word taught every day. They gathered to share in the fellowship or their common share in God every day. They gathered to share in the Lord's Supper every day. And they prayed together as a gathered body every single day. Now imagine the, fa- the effect of that in your life. How would that change your life if, if that was something you did every single day? It might change the way you think about the church or the way you think about prayer or the way you think about engaging with the people of God. A lot of times when we think about schooling, we think about a curriculum of teaching. We take students through a particular curriculum so that at the end, hopefully, they have some kind of formative shape as a student. And then to make sure they got it, we test them. We want to make sure they got what we were trying to give them. And so that curriculum is meant to form them into successful students. And in the same sense, this way that the New Testament believers went about the church is a curriculum of sorts. It's a curriculum comprised of authoritative teaching, of fellowship, of communion, of being reminded over and over again of Christ in us, and of praying before God because a community who prays reminds itself that we don't trust our own intuitions and our own feelings. We are fully dependent upon God who is sovereign over all. Preference, you see, their own preferences were secondary to the place of God in the life of the community of the church. And finally, what we see is that this was a missional and evangelistic Community. So not only was it devoted to the teaching, to the fellowship, and to right worship of God, they were devoted to the mission of God. Look at verse 47. It says that they were um, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now that's, that's a miracle in and of itself. These people had favor with everyone. This is not just talking about inside those 3,000 people. This was talking about the larger community of Jerusalem. And look at that very last sentence. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now that's incredible. We can sometimes fall into the wrong thinking of, I can talk somebody into salvation. I can arrange things just so people will rightly respond to God through salvation. And yet these people understood that it was God who saves. That it was God who performs the work of salvation in the heart of a sinner, of a, of a heart that's dead in sin, to use the language of Ephesians. It's God who makes them alive together with Christ. And so Luke is doing a great deal in this text of Scripture, and really in the larger book of Acts, to show us that the work Jesus started in the Gospel of Luke has been transferred by the power of the Holy Spirit to the church and is being carried out. Not just that it's been transferred, but that it's been transferred and is being carried out. Jesus bore the gospel to the sick and the broken and the sinful. And so now the church bears that through the power of the Holy Spirit. One pastor said a vibrant gospel community or a vibrant church extends itself in two directions. 
The first one is toward God. We gather together week in and week out to extend ourselves towards God. That's the purpose of this service, of this time every single week. We come together to glorify God through singing and through prayers and through his word. But a vibrant gospel community also extends itself towards the neighbor, towards one another, towards the lost. And so these first Christians in Jerusalem were not so preoccupied with their learning and their studying and their being together that they forgot to witness and to carry out the mission of God. You see, the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit who creates a missionary church. You see, when God was ordaining how the world would be saved, he wasn't up there establishing things like the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, there's nothing wrong with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm a big supporter of it. But what God was establishing, what Jesus Christ died and rose for, is his church. And the church is the missionary organization that God has commissioned to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's important to note that Luke never says new converts were added primarily through preaching or church ministry or any of this other stuff. He said none of this was primary. What we see is that the church's evangelistic success was from a holistic approach to their life. The way people got saved was that these Christians lived faithfully day in and day out. They understood the place of God's word in their life. They loved their community, their brothers and sisters, to such an extent that Luke says, if somebody had something in need, they just sold something and gave it. They were committed to one another so that their possessions did not take priority over one another. You see, God was real to them. God was real to them in every area of their life. And when you meet someone in whose life God is real... It affects you. When you meet someone who is loving and treasuring Jesus, it affects you. You know that. And it leaves an impression on you. And so I said in the second half, I wanted to give you how this text applies to me. These are some things that I would hope would be true of me. And if they're not, the one person that could tell you is seated on the second row there. So feel free to ask her later. But I want to tell you from this text how... These things apply in my own life. First, I am devoted to teaching and preaching the authoritative word of God. I am not uh, the best preacher in the world, but I am committed to preaching and teaching the authoritative work, word of God. In this text, Luke notes that the church was devoted to, they were committed to, they were steadfast in the authoritative teaching of the word of God. Moreover, this was the primary activity that formed the church. How do we walk as faithful Christians before the face of God? It's primarily through the teaching of, the ongoing teaching of the Word of God. So because of this, I have devoted myself to the ongoing teaching and preaching of the Word of God. He has called me to devote myself to the work of pastoring and shepherding, and this means my primary commitment is to God's Word. So this means that it it informs how I preach, how I teach. It informs how I would lead, how I counsel people, how I correct and rebuke, how I administer discipline, and how I administer a church. The Word of God is central in all that I do. And that's not because I have chosen to make it so. It's because God has so radically worked it in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit that He's come to orient me around His Word. 
Secondly, Luke records that these early Christians devoted themselves to and prioritized fellowship with one another. So I have become devoted to true gospel fellowship and gospel community. What that means is I am committed to godliness together. I am committed in my heart to godliness together. One of my favorite pastors said this, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. We belong to one another on the basis of Christ, on what the basis of what Christ has done for us and is doing in us. So, that will influence how I approach Sunday morning worship services, Sunday school, small group Bible studies and meetings, Wednesday night activities, mission trips, camps. It will affect how I give counsel on workplace, schools, homes, hospitals, times of loss and death. I am committed to fostering, encouraging, and carrying out God's design for biblical community. Amen. A third thing we see is that this church was devoted to the true worship of God. And this can be somewhat of a, a sticky word in our culture today. So I want to explain very clearly what I mean when I say worship. Luke gives us a glimpse into both the formal and the informal worship practices of this church. They met daily, as I said, to share in the formal things, the authoritative teaching, the fellowshipping together, communion, and praying. But they also gathered informally every day. Their homes became sanctuaries of praise as they gathered for meals to enjoy one another's company, to bring in the lost so that they might experience the work of God in the lives of the church. You see, worship is far more than a style of music, although it includes styles of music. Worship, biblically, is our natural way of going about life. You see, in the garden, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created worshipers. Adam and Eve did not start worshiping. They were created worshiping. You and I, it's our natural response to the world. And the question is not, are we worshipers? The question is, what are we worshiping? Where do we orient our lives to day by day? See, we elevate and prioritize that which we hold most dear. For some, it's something other than God. For some of us, we worship a job or another person or a style of service or a style of music or a position of power. The early church was devoted to God alone, and secondary things came second. And so you can expect me to be committed to the primary worship of God alone as he reveals it in his word, to prioritize the right worship of God over secondary things. Now, secondary things are not unimportant, but they are what they are, secondary things. You can expect me to pastor and shepherd toward that end. I want us as a people of God to be so taken with God's grace and his mercy and his glory that that is what is primary in our meetings together. Finally, what we see is that this church was devoted to the work of the gospel and the salvation of the lost. And so you can expect me to be devoted to seeing lives changed and the nations reached with the gospel. You can expect me to be devoted to the work of the gospel in the world. This means that in my heart, I want nothing more than to see God glorified in the salvation of sinners all around the world, beginning right here where the church is. 
I want to see new churches planted. I want to see older churches reinvigorated. And I want to see dying churches saved. I want to, you can expect me to, to lead in these things personally. You can expect me to come alongside of you and encourage you and motivate you and sometimes prod you along to be involved and to go with the gospel. And by God's grace, we will see men and women, boys and girls, saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask you a question. Based on what God has said, and you need to answer this personally and corporately as a body, based on what God has said in his word, are you faithfully committed to his New Testament church? Are you faithfully committed to his New Testament church? Are you devoted to the authoritative word of God as a, as, together as a body and individually as Christians before his face? Are you devoted to the fellowship as the Bible would define it? Godliness together. Are we committed to one another on the basis of what Christ has done and is doing? Are you committed to, are you devoted to right worship of God through the sharing of the Lord's Supper and praying together on a regular basis? And are you devoted to the mission of God, which is the establishing of His church and the salvation of the lost? And so I would invite you to evaluate your own heart in these things, to confess to God where you may struggle, because if you are like me, you struggle. You struggle with these things because we are not perfect, because the gospel is still being worked out in us day by day, praise be to God. But we struggle. And so we should confess to God where we struggle. We should confess to our brothers and sisters so that they might encourage us and help us. So I would invite you to evaluate your own heart and confess to God and to receive his grace and to be encouraged together that his church stands strong that he died for his church, that his church will not fail. And in that, brothers and sisters, we have tremendous hope. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your word, that it is steadfast, that it is authoritative, that it speaks to us in ways, Lord, that we sometimes can't even speak to ourselves. Lord, this morning, as we have reflected on this text from Acts 2. I pray that we are moved to worship at how you formed this church. You took 120 scared people, you infused them with the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, and you sent them out and changed the world. Lord, the reason that we have gathered here this morning is because we share in their heritage. We are here today because of them. Ultimately, God, we are here today because of you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people devoted to the right teaching and the authoritative teaching of your word, that we would pattern our lives around it. God, I pray that we would be a people devoted to the right fellowship, that we would come together on the basis of what Christ has done in us and is doing through us, or that we would constantly give ourselves to the right worship of you, that we would be a praying people, and Lord, that we would be a missional people that we would be seeking to live our lives every single day for the sake of the gospel among the lost. And that like this church, God, that we might see the lost come to be saved, that they might find salvation in and through your son, Jesus Christ, and that this might be a community where they can find teaching and fellowship and prayer and life together with these brothers and sisters. Lord, we commit this time to you. 
And it is in your precious name that we pray. Amen. I'll be down front as we sing if you'd like to pray with me.